you're traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. That's the signpost up ahead. Your next stop, the Twilight Zone. Filmmaker and writer Kevin Smith once said in an interview that a writer carves and creates the sort of world that they want to live in. In Kevin Smith's ideal world, everyone would dissect pop culture in long, heavily worded monologues. In Quentin Tarantino's world, everyone would have all seen the same movies as him and are happy to talk about them ad nauseum. In the world of Gregory West, the subject of tonight's Twilight Zone, he doesn't just create the sort of world he wants to live in, he actually lives in the world he's created. The home of Mr. Gregory West, one of America's most noted playwrights. The office of Mr. Gregory West. Mr. Gregory West, shy, quiet, and at the moment, very happy. Merry, warm, affectionate. You really should be working, you know. You're nagging me. I'm only thinking of posterity. Think of me instead. Don't I always? Yes, you do. And the final ingredient, Mrs. Gregory West. First broadcast on the 1st of July, 1960, written by Richard Matheson and directed by Ralph Nelson. Now, the original idea for A World of His Own was very different to the light-hearted entry we eventually got. In Matheson's original pitch, the episode was a lot darker in tone and would be about the writer's creations coming to life to haunt him rather than keep him company. However, Serling and Buck Houghton felt it was too downbeat and dark for primetime television and asked him to rewrite it as a comedy. Matheson's original idea would be printed in an issue of the Twilight Zone magazine in April 1983 retitled, And Now I'm Waiting, with the editorial comment that it was a chilling study of a writer's satanic imagination. In an interview with the magazine, Matheson writes, It is not clear in my memory whether I submitted the actual short story manuscript to Rod and Buck, or whether I submitted an outline based on the story, which, incidentally, has never been published before. I do recall that they liked the premise, but not the approach, feeling that the story was too melodramatic for them, it was decided, again memory fails and I do not recall whose suggestion it was originally, to elect for a comedic approach. I'm glad we did. It was one of my favourites of the Twilight Zone segments I wrote. The cast was perfect and Raph Nelson's directorial touch was just right. Also, I believe it was the only teasy episode in which one of the characters broke in on Rod's final narration and altered it, which is something we'll come on to a little bit later. Now, sadly, despite my digging, I couldn't track down a copy of And Now I'm Waiting Online, and I don't have a copy of the magazine it was printed, or the book in which it was printed again. Which is a shame, as I'd love to post it up on the podcast as an extra, and it would be interesting to compare the quality of the story and the sort of episode it might be to what we eventually got. So, if anyone out there does have a copy they can send across to me, please email me at luke at the twilightzonenetwork.com. 
So the question really is, did Serling and Houghton make the right call? As I've said, I've not read the short story, so I can't make a complete informed decision on that, but I do have to question whether Matheson could have simply toned down the story rather than taking it in a complete 180. With that said, there is a piece of artwork in that issue of the Twilight Zone magazine that shows a writer's hand using a terrified looking woman as a pen, which is certainly a striking piece of imagery and probably not suitable for the themes of the Twilight Zone. And the editorial comment of a satanic imagination certainly would suggest there was a lot to tone down. I mean, as I said, I've, I've not read the short story, so I can't really make an informed judgment. Maybe I'll come back to this if I do get sent the short. So rather than focus on what could have been, let's take a look at Gregory West in a world of his own. So we open on the home of Mr. Gregory West, who we're told is a very famous playwright, and we see him enjoying a drink with a young lady by the name of Mary. As Serling's narration comes to a close, the camera pans round to reveal Gregory's wife, Victoria, looking through the window at her seemingly adultering husband. As she storms in the house to confront him, she discovers that the woman is no longer in the room, with no signs of her ever being there. I hope I'm not interrupting you. Darling, I'll only be a moment. I just want to come in and kiss you. Well, I didn't expect you... <clears throat> What's the matter, dear? Something wrong? Gregory West was played by Keenan Wynne, who was the son of legendary comedy actor Ed Wynne, who we have seen in the Twilight Zone already in the episode 1 for the Angels, and would see again in 90 Years Without Slumbering. As Edwin's comedic career came to a close, it was Keenan who convinced his father that he should take on more dramatic roles, like Serling's Playhouse 90 episode Requiem for Heavyweight, and he would go on to star with his father in The Absent Mind Professor and its sequel, Son of Flubber. Keenan Wynn would appear in over 100 movies over his 50-year career with Dr. Strange Love, The Great Race, and Once Upon a Time in the West being his most notable performances. He was such a busy actor that he was working right up until he died in 1986 of pancreatic cancer at the age of 70. You know, one of the true highlights of A World of His Own is the acting, and Keenan Wynn is really great as Gregory West. We'll look at the questionable nature of his character a bit later on, but in terms of performance, Wynn does a great job. But a leading man can only be as good as his leading lady, and this is why Phyllis Kirk steals the show. How come you're home so early, dear? Didn't you like the movie? No, not very much. I just decided I'd come home early. Have you, uh, been busy? Oh, yes, yes, I got quite a bit done. Did you? Oh, I see you dropped a glass. Oh, yes. You looking for something, dear? No, no, I, uh, I just thought I'd see if your room needed to be clean. I don't think so. 
What are you doing, dear? Honey, what are you doing? Mm -hmm. Oh, I am uh, uh, checking the wall. Uh -huh. What's that? Oh. My scissors. Perhaps a lot of the credit for Phyllis Kirk's performance as Victoria West can be put down to the makeup and hair department as her look is very striking and memorable, but her delivery also helps and I think that Kirk really is the best thing in this episode. She pulls out a genuinely funny performance which is something you don't see very often in the Twilight Zone and she's very enjoyable in every aspect of her character. Are you alright Victoria? Hmm. Oh. Well, I don't know. I'm not too sure. Really? Uh, as a matter of fact, I think I may be suffering from hallucinations. Oh, you poor You know, dear. it's the strangest thing, but I was just standing outside this window only a moment ago, right here. You were? Yes, I was. And you'll never guess what I saw through that window, Gregory, or at least you'll never guess what I thought I saw. I couldn't possibly guess. I thought I saw a woman in your arms. <laughs> Did you? Yes, isn't that just too ridiculous? <laughs> oh, well, listen, wouldn't you like to have me describe her to you? Well, oh, let me, let me. She had uh, masses of blonde hair, and she wore one of those frumpy little blouses with a kind of tacky little brooch at the bosom, and one of those dreadful sort of peasant skirts. <laughs> but the funny thing was that she handed you a drink. <laughs> Oh, such detail. It's quite remarkable. Yes, isn't it? Of course, if I had thought about it, darling, well, I, I would have realized how ridiculous it was. I mean, I would have realized if I'd thought about it for a minute that a man of your great and extraordinary taste couldn't possibly be interested in such a drab, ugly little creature. Oh, she's not so drab. Uh-huh. Didn't think I'd be home so early, did you? Didn't think I'd be home the whole afternoon, did you? Thought you had me fooled, didn't you? Well, let me tell you something, Gregory West. I've had my eye on you for some time now. Didn't think I suspected the real reason for why you were always sending me out of the house on one pretext than another, did you? I must be alone to work, you said. The great and famous playwright. The great and famous philanderer. Now, Victoria, right, look, now It's funny to note, then, that while Matheson did like this episode, which is something that would not happen very often, the one thing he wasn't keen on was Phyllis Kirk. In the Twilight Zone Companion, Matheson notes that they had a good cast, and he also mentioned the same thing in that quote from the Twilight Zone magazine I mentioned earlier. But in interviews since, he has criticised the work of Phyllis Kirk, most notably because she was an actor who would change dialogue on a whim to suit her needs, as opposed to staying on script. Phyllis Kirk started acting in the early 50s and had a very busy decade as she starred in a lot of movies, although none of them really leap off the page with the exception of the horror classic House of Wax. She also featured in episodes of Playhouse 90 and Tales of Tomorrow, but was perhaps best known for playing Nora Childs in the comedy series The Thin Man. Remarkably though, for such a busy actress, her work seemed to dry up as the 1960s came round and A World of His Own was one of her last performances before she retired from acting in the 1970s. As I say, I think she's really great in this role. She gets a lot of laughs and when she's attempting to subtly look round his room for his mistress, she's really great, but 
her performance gets even better when Gregory comes clean about his secret. So simple. Where is she? I can explain everything. Do Go you remember? Well, now wait. Do you remember my play Fury in the Night? Oh, yes. Dear, do you remember it? You remember the character Philip Wainwright? Gregory, Dirt. just tell me one thing. What's her name? What? What's her name? Mary, but that doesn't... Mary, how common. Oh, now, Victoria, please, Victoria, just sit down here and listen to me. Let me explain. I'm listening. You know how sometimes I've told you that fictional characters come alive? They come alive so vividly that they make decisions of their own. A playwright may have worked out some kind of move for them, but they refuse to do it. They will not accept anybody's... They become so strong that sometimes they take over the whole story. Gregory, I hardly see that this has anything... Please bear with me, Victoria. I've borne with you for years. Philip Wainwright was the first one of my play characters to ever behave like that. No matter what I had planned for him, he balked. He refused. He wouldn't accept any of my decisions. He became alive with a will of his own. You understand? I understand that you're trying to change the subject. I'm not... This is the subject. Philip Wainwright became alive. One night, when I was working here, right, right up here in my office, Philip Wainwright walked in through that door. Oh, Greg, now really? Victoria, you've got to believe me. He walked in right through that door. He came in here, and he sat down in that chair. Alive, real flesh and blood man. And I created him. Oh, my. What are you doing? I am afraid that psychiatry is the next on the agenda. You've got to believe me, Victoria. Characters in my plays do come alive. I've seen them, I've talked to them, I've even shaken hands with them. You even made love to them, remember? Yes. I mean, no! Look, you know how I work. I dictate dialogue and stage business into the tape recorder. I describe any character I want, and if I do it well enough, they come to life. To life, Victoria! And I don't even have to describe the characters in my plays anymore. I can describe any character I want. You should be put away. All of the blog reviews I have read for this episode all seem to suggest that A World of His Own was Matheson's way of having fun at the expense of his writer colleagues about how they would write and how they would view their own work. For example, the method of using a dictaphone was Matheson's play on how Rod Serling wrote his script for The Twilight Zone. According to writings about him, Serling would lounge by the pool and recite notes which he would then type up into scripts. Quite the life, eh? And so it's here that Gregory reveals that while he has the power to create, he also has the power to remove. Now you said that you saw Mary here, right? Oh, I saw her here all right. Then how did she get out? That's what I'm trying to find out. She could not have gone out through the window. You know there are no secret doors in here. But I'm going to show you how she got out of here because I want you to understand. I take my scissors. I snip off the part of the tape on which she is described. I roll the tape into a little ball. 
I throw it into the fireplace, she's gone. Uncreated. I'm going to have you committed. Of course, Victoria doesn't believe him, and so in an effort to show her, Gregory begins to describe Mary into his dictaphone. Her name is Mary. She's 30 years old, 5 feet 6 inches tall, nicely built, blonde hair, fair complexion. A simple, unassuming female, but with that quality of inner loveliness that brings real beauty to a woman. A tender, gentle woman, an understanding woman. She's dressed in a soft blouse, old-fashioned brooch, full skirt. Her hair is attractively arranged. She's coming up the front walk. She's crossing the porch. She's opening the front door. She's closing it. She's walking across the hall. But even as Mary walks into the room, Victoria again questions the validity of his story and even threatens to divorce him. But it's also here that we see a different side to Gregory West's character. Up until now, Gregory has been, as Rod Selling described, shy and quiet, but his decision to constantly remove Mary from his life really makes you question his integrity as a man. If you listen to Mary's plea, it doesn't really sound like this is something she enjoys and, if anything, it's quite painful for her to constantly be made and unmade. And, worse still, he puts the blame of his actions onto other people so that he doesn't have to take the responsibility for what he does. Why do you do this to me, Greg? Well, I'm sorry, Mary, but... What else can I do? I just got here, Greg. What else can I do? That's all you ever say. You wouldn't believe me, huh? You just gotta make me show you, huh? You've gotta make me force poor Mary to leave again. Victoria, sometimes I wonder. Don't bring me back again, Greg. Now, Mary. Just don't. I can't bear it any longer. Oh. Forgive me, Mary, but she is my wife. Where is she? I told you. Where is she? You still don't believe me, huh? We will look into this a bit later on in the episode, but I really don't think Gregory West is a nice man, and I wonder if it was Matheson's intentions to make him so boorish and unlikable. Given the ending of the episode, you have to consider that Matheson didn't take this into consideration. Unless his point was to say that even the worst men on the earth get what they want, as long as they have enough power to do so. It's a theme that the episode unfortunately skips over to focus on the light-hearted nature, but it really is something to consider when you look at a world of his own. 
is Gregory right in what he's doing? As Gregory continues to explain his actions to Victoria, and putting the blame of Mary's creation on her, she tries to escape through the door, but in an effort to stop her, Gregory grabs his microphone again. A giant red-eyed elephant is standing in my hallway and will not let her pass. Oh, Gregory, don't be ridiculous. out of my hall. Will you stay? Yes. In the Twilight Zone Companion, Buck Houghton remembers, I came around the stage corner and there was an elephant and the elephant man was having him go on his nose and then back onto his legs and then on his nose and then back on his legs and then on his nose and I stood there wondering what this guy was beating this poor elephant to death for. Finally, he didn't give the next order. The elephant sh**ed out a bale of hay and he says, now you're good for two hours. So I went and I told Nelson, you've got two hours to use this elephant or we're in trouble. A World of His Own really is a bottle episode in that it's all based on one set and there are only three actors and not a large amount of action. Aside from making people disappear in front of a live audience, this is a Twilight Zone episode that could easily be turned into an inexpensive stage play. But the elephant in the hall is a real jolt to the system and it's really effective in showing off what Gregory can do with his powers. And so it's at this point where Gregory reveals his final secret. He walks over to a secret part of his bookcase opens up a safe and pulls out an envelope with Victoria West's name on it. An envelope that has recording tape in it. Now, Victoria, shall I put this back in the safe or shall I throw it in the fire? Uh, Gregory, you're not seriously trying to make me be... I am telling you, Victoria, look at yourself. Regal, beautiful. You could have any man in the world that you wanted. Haven't you ever wondered how you happen to get stuck with me? Well, I'm telling you, you're impeccable, flawless. You're just the sort of wife that I always used to think I wanted more than anything else in the world. Is this another one of your tawdry little tricks? Now, why do you think I got so upset when you came back here a while ago? Not because of Mary, but because you came back against my will for the first time. For the first time. Do you think you're frightening me? No, I guess not. Or oh, you're beyond that. I made you too strong. I forgot to add a little human frailty. I think now would be a good time to look at Gregory West's gift. As a man who can create anything by simply talking into a dictaphone, you have to wonder just what is real and what is fake in a world of his own. Is there anything real about Gregory West? We're never given any indication of the plays that he's written, just that he's successful from them. But who's to say that he didn't create this persona for himself by creating an audience for his work who will enjoy it? 
or that he's told every one of his creations that he's successful, when in reality he isn't? What if the home he lives in is nothing more than a string of tape that hasn't yet been thrown on the fire? What if Gregory is the only person in this world and everything around him is of his own creation? Knowing that he created not only his wife but also his mistress, it is not a stretch to think that there is nothing in Gregory West's world that is genuine, including himself. This is another issue the episode never really dives into, but why would it? It is after all a comedy episode, and there is no need to bog down the story with this kind of detail. But perhaps Matheson's original pitch might have done. If the episode was darker in tone, these issues might have been addressed. And while I do like this episode, I think it doesn't really explore the idea enough and instead just focuses on the light-hearted nature of the story. As we briefly discussed earlier, given that Gregory can giveth and taketh away, is he really a likeable man? Is he deserving of this world? Perhaps it was a sign of the times, but a world of his own is a male fantasy story. Gregory is a man who can create women to simply fall in love with him and do whatever he wants and he has the option to throw them away when he needs to. As I said, you can say that this is a sign of the times and this sort of thing never crossed the mind of Matheson while penning this light and frothy corner of the fifth dimension, but there is no denying that beneath Gregory's seemingly innocent exterior is a megalomaniacal sociopath. As a comparative piece, let's look at the season 3 episode It's a Good Life and its protagonist, little Anthony Fremont. In this episode, Anthony has the power to create anything with his mind and if people don't think good thoughts or disagree with him, he has the ability to send them out into the cornfield, a place that is never explained but is thought to be a purgatory of sorts. We see that Anthony can create life when he shows the postman he's created a two-headed gopher but then kills it when he gets bored of it. The idea behind the episode is that Anthony is a monster, but he's only doing and saying the sort of things that any child of his age would do. It is just that this child can create and control those around him. So, hypothetically speaking, what's to say that as Anthony grows older, he doesn't start to do what Gregory West is doing and starts to create women from his imagination to have relationships with? With that in mind, where do the differences lie? Why is Anthony seen as a monster and Gregory as portrayed as the hero who gets everything he wants? Really, there isn't a difference between them. If anything, this is actually a great example of the impact Tone has on an episode of The Twilight Zone. If you take away the comedy of this episode and tone down Phyllis Kirk's over-the-top performance, then you would have a very dark story on your hands. By the same token, if you were to add some levity to It's a Good Life, Anthony could be seen as just a little scamp who is getting into scrapes because of his power. With that said, there is a reason why It's a Good Life is remembered more than a world of his own. So Victoria calls his bluff and throws her own piece of tape on the fire, making her disappear from Gregory's life. In an attempt to bring her back, Gregory starts to record her description again, only to change his mind at the very last moment. Gregory. Would you like to know what I think of your childish nonsense? <laughs> this. Victoria! Oh, Greg. Greg, I feel so strange. I... You, you don't mean that you were telling me the truth. 
Now, I told her, I told her, she just wouldn't listen to me. Her name, her name is Mrs. Victoria West. Why not leave well enough alone? Her name is Mary. Mrs. Mary West. She's 30, five feet six inches tall, blonde hair, nicely built, clear complexion. She's a plain, unassuming female with that inner quality of loveliness that makes a woman truly beautiful. She is dressed in a soft pink blouse, old-fashioned brooch, flowing skirt. Her hair is attractively arranged. She is in her husband's study, preparing him a drink. So, as the camera pans round to reveal the now-named Mary West in Gregory's study, we get perhaps the most iconic moments of the episode, the first on-screen appearance of Rod Serling, which leads to perhaps the best gag of the first season. We hope you enjoyed tonight's romantic story on the Twilight Zone. At the same time, we want you to realize that it was, of course, purely fictional. In real life, such ridiculous nonsense could never... Rod! shouldn't. I mean, you shouldn't say such things as nonsense and ridiculous. Well, that's the way it goes. Which brings us to the next big question of this episode. Does this mean that the Twilight Zone is all the creation of Gregory West? If Rod Serling is just a piece of West's world, then surely the actions of Rod are dictated by Gregory West. We often talk about what the Twilight Zone is and where in the world it is, but perhaps this episode has all the answers we're looking for. It's a very existential ending and it raises several questions. If Rod Serling, and therefore the Twilight Zone, is all part of Gregory West's imagination, does that mean we're all part of his conscience too? As we briefly discussed earlier, does Gregory's creation stretch out to more than just his home? <laughs> of course, the reality of it is that Richard Matheson wrote the Rod Serling cameo in the episode as a gag to close out the first season. In the Twilight Zone Companion, Richard Matheson remembers greatly, I think I was the only one who was ever able to add a sequence where Rod Serling was made to disappear too. It was the last show of the season, so they felt they could do it. The Twilight Zone wasn't guaranteed a second season at this point, so they had carte blanche to do whatever they wanted with the ending, including playing with fourth wall expectations. But although it is just a gag to round off the first season, it would give birth to an aspect of the Twilight Zone that the show is most remembered for, Rod Serling as an on-screen narrator. Leaving Mr. Gregory West, still shy, quiet, very happy, and apparently in complete control of the Twilight Zone.
I'm hoping that I won't have to say this too often, but apologies for the slight delay in getting this episode out. As I've said, there will be times where I won't be able to get this done as regularly as I'd like, but hopefully it won't be too often. Thank you to everyone who sent me messages and emails while I was off. I had a nice time in Wales and Las Vegas, although I enjoyed the latter more than the former. While I was out in Vegas, someone I was working with spotted me reading my copy of The Twilight Zone Companion, and we struck up a conversation about the show. She then told me there was a Twilight Zone themed slot machine in the city, but wasn't sure where it was. So, naturally, I went looking for it. I found a thread on TripAdvisor that told me that the slot machine was in New York, New York, so I went for a walk to see if I could find it, but after wandering around a few times I came up short. I had a look around the other casinos, but came up short in all of them. I'd even been told there was one at the hotel I was staying at, but that had since been removed. It was starting to get really frustrating, you know. I found slot machines for seemingly everything from Walking Dead to Iron Man to Judge Judy to the Beverly Hillbillies, but no Twilight Zone. I felt like Dave Gorman, you know, I'd, I got obsessed with this quest to try and find this one slot machine, but I just could not find it. The one at the airport had been removed as well, so... Sadly, there is no Twilight Zone slot machine story for me to tell. I have since been told, uh, while doing some more research, that there is one in Old Vegas, funnily enough, down Fremont Street. But uh, I didn't get a chance to go there, so maybe if I go again, I'll see if I can find the Twilight Zone slot machine. One last thing for me before we jump into the mailbag. Before I left for Vegas, I was watching the first season of the American sitcom Modern Family on Netflix, and there was a joke in there that didn't have much effect on me at the time, but a couple of days later it suddenly hit me. In the episode Airport 2010, Jay and his family are sitting in an airport waiting to go to Hawaii, and Jay is very proud of his ebook reader and talks about how he can't wait to read all of the books that he stored on it. Unfortunately, when his grandson Luke is messing around, he meets the same fate as one Henry J. Beamers in The Twilight Zone. Check it out, Grandpa! Jam means working. I'm not dizzy. Yeah. Oh, watch the drink, kid. Oh, oh, my lungs. Uh, I'm sorry, Grandpa. Uh, relax, relax. We might be okay here. Not fair. It's not fair. Ah, this time enough at last. That's not fair at all. <laughs> you know, the episode's four years old now, so I'm aware that this isn't news, but it did tickle me upon re-watching. In an interview with a website called Pudget Sound Radio, the writer Dan O'Shannon said that he was a big fan of The Twilight Zone, and he wanted to come up with a 2010 version of The Broken Glasses, which he decided was a broken ebook reader. He said, We didn't ask Ed O'Neill to do a Burgess Meredith impression, First came the idea to have something bad happen to Jay's device, and when we decided that it ought to break, the Twilight Zone episode popped into my head. We got into an argument in the writer's room as the occupants were divided on whether viewers would notice or get the reference. The conclusion was that it was worth putting in for that 1% of the population who will understand the illusion. But enough from me, let's dive into Submitted for Your Approval. 
This first from Grace, who had this to say about the Twilight Zone movie, which I discussed with Tom and Chris Brown of the Night Gallery podcast and the current host of the Video Nasties podcast. She writes, I realised something just recently. When you guys hosted a discussion on the Twilight Zone movie from the 1980s, the subject of other separate films with a Twilight Zone theme, style and or twist came up at one point. I realised that a great example of this kind of Twilight Zone style would be Fight Club. Though a mature, rated, modern, contemporary movie, it has a lot of elements that echo the Twilight Zone very strongly. The third act twist, the engaging fluid dialogue, the fact that it is narrated, though it is in the first person here instead of a third person, as well as the modern social commentary. There are many similarities. I can only hope that there is to be newer versions of this series, though nothing could ever eclipse the original in my opinion, I hope that the writing and the story design could be as well done as it is in this film. Say my name. Tyler Durden. You broke your promise. Talk to her about me. Why do people think that I'm you? Why would anyone possibly confuse you with me? Because we're the same person. You were looking for a way to change your life. You could not do this on your own. All the ways you wish you could be, that's me. I look like you want to look. I feel like you want to. I am smart, capable, and most importantly, I'm free in all the ways that you are not. People do it every day. They talk to themselves, they see themselves as they'd like to be. They don't have the courage you have to just run with it. Thanks for that, Grace. That's really great stuff. You know, I really adore Fight Club as a movie, and it really does fit into the Twilight Zone mold. I think for me, if they were to do another movie, I would like to see them take on the same format as the 1983 movie. Take four directors who love the show and get them to do new takes on old classics. I mean, it'd be great to see them do new stories, but... As you said, we have Fight Club and we have Inception, you know, we have these kind of movies. I think if you were to do something that was Twilight Zone, it would have to be old Twilight Zone episodes. But but that's just me. And lastly, we have this from our old friend Nasser Hassan, who used to email with great feedback during Tom's days on the Twilight Zone podcast. So it's great to hear from you again. So here are his thoughts on Jack Klugman in A Passage for Trumpets. Hey, Luke. This is Uncommon NASA. I am a listener to the Twilight Zone podcast and have been uh, since the, uh, I can't say the very beginning, but uh, I went back and listened to all the ones from the beginning. But I picked up with Tom probably in episode 10 or 11. Really big fan of the show. Uh, I've recorded stuff before and, and, and written before. Um, really happy with what you've been doing. Congratulations for taking over. Uh, it's really good to get podcasts every week. Uh, miss Tom, but I'm uh, really starting to get into what you're doing uh, as well. So congratulations for that. Wanted to just record a quick thing about Jack Klugman uh, since you had just done Passage for Trumpet and just kind of highlight, in my opinion, some of the great things about him as an actor and how he um, was perfect for Rod Serling's writing. There's sort of a, a palpable pain there's something so human about the way that Jack Klugman says things and the way that he delivers lines, and I think it matches perfect with what Rod has written. Um, a lot of times that outsider sort of view that his characters have, them being themselves, makes them an outsider to other people, and it creates issues in their lives. And Jack Klugman was perfect at playing these these sorts of characters that Rod Serling was so good at writing in Passage for Trumpet, in Game of Pool, in Praise of Pip, 
outlier characters. And that's what makes them connect so well with me. And in, in this case in particular, I'm a musician. That's why I'm recording this is Uncommon NASA. That's the name that I make music under. This really hits home. There's one line in particular that kind of makes the entire episode pay off. If I could take a moment just to play that. It's the moment where Joey is asked why he drinks. Because I'm sad. Because I'm nothing. Because I live and die in a crummy one-roomer with dirty walls and cracked pipes. And I'll never even have a girl. I'll never be anybody. Because half of me is this horn. I can't even talk to people, Baron, because this horn, that's half my language. It's such a brilliant phrase to say that the horn or his musicianship or what he plays or what he has to say with his instrument, that's half his language. And obviously a, a person that does not make music that he's trying to communicate with may not understand everything that he's trying to get across, may not understand everything that he is as a person. And I think that is why if you've ever met a musician in your life that is not sort of on a fast track or, or involved in pop music or what have you, they, they generally are sometimes very sad individuals because I think deep down at their core, there is sort of a disconnect, that artistic brain um, can disconnect you from a large segment of society that will just never understand why you do and say and act the way that you do. And unfortunately for a lot of musicians, it causes them to turn to alcohol or to harder drugs. And you see that cycle repeated over and over again with the famous and the unfamous uh, amongst musicians. And Jack Klugman captured that perfectly. And the fact that Rod Sterling was able to write these lines as a non-musician and you know, to my knowledge and Jack Klugman was able to deliver them as a non-musician the way that he did really shows their abilities um, as a writer and as an actor so with Jack Klugman just passing only a year ago um, or so just wanted to make sure that you know I personally threw some highlight on uh, Jack Klugman's work because it's the Twilight Zone to me is is it's my favorite show of all time and I'm so influenced by Rod Serling's writing in the music that I make but Jack Klugman is a huge part of getting across some of Rod Serling's best written dialogue um, for the show so again great job Luke um, the last episode you did really nailed it um, the research was was brilliant on Mighty Casey um, much praise looking forward to uh hearing the other four seasons as we uh, move on. Thanks. Thanks for that, Nessa. That's great to have you back on the show, and, and thank you for your kind comments about my turn on the Twilight Zone podcast. Klugman is easily one of my favorite performers in the fifth dimension, and I couldn't agree with you more on your comments about him, in particular Passage for Trumpet, but I absolutely love him in A Game of Pool. That, that, that's a really good episode that I'm looking forward to getting to. Uh, and that was a great clip choice as well, NASA, so thank you very much for that. As always, if you want to get in touch with the show, please email me at luke at thetwilightzonenetwork.com. You can find us on facebook.com forward slash thetwilightzonenetwork, on Twitter at twilightzonenet, and over at thetwilightzonenetwork.com. If you want to contact me personally, you can find me on Twitter at lukewritestuff, and online at flickerymyth.com and lukewritestuff.com. So, we've finally reached the end of Season 1. 
But before we head into Season 2, next week I will be sitting down with an old friend to discuss our thoughts on Season 1 as a whole. Tom Elliott returns to the Twilight Zone podcast next week with a look back at the first season of the Twilight Zone. Take care. Bye-bye.